Well, I'd like to ask if we can open up our Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'd like to look at a passage today that considers some ideas of sharing the gospel, getting the gospel into the world, preaching the gospel to people, maybe sharing the gospel as your testimony to a friend, loved one, however it may be. And 1 Peter chapter 3, we have the middle of this book that the Apostle Peter was writing to the, I believe, the church in Rome. And we have some interesting verses here. And our main verse is verse 15, but I'd like to back it up to verse 13 if we could to consider a little bit more of the context of what First Peter is talking about. So in verse 13, it says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And then verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. This is a very interesting passage because I believe it gives us a good explanation of the context of, that, of what is going on around the culture of the Roman church. And then, in that, not only the Roman church, but... All of the church at that time in the known world, whether it be in Israel or Italy or Greece or Macedonia uh, or southern um, around Mediterranean. All the churches were experiencing the same kind of context of suffering, of tribulation, of trials. All of them were. And... I think if one has a good understanding of what these trials are like, and if we can understand the history of the trials, if we can understand the cultural history of the trials and suffering, if we can understand the knowledge of what they were experiencing, if we can, if we can research that, understand that, and develop a clear picture of exactly what is going on, then the scriptures actually take a different emphasis. The light of the scripture becomes a little bit more specific and clear and teaches us a deeper meaning of what these passages are talking about. But I'm, I'm not an expert, a history expert. I don't have a PhD in history. But I know a little bit and... The book of Hebrews gives us some good ideas of what's happening to the Hebrew people that have become to know the Lord as their Savior. 
And although we don't know specifically the writer of the book of Hebrews, although it is God's word, we do know that it was written to the Hebrews that have become Christians, that are living in the known world, and more specifically in Rome. There's much reference in the book of Hebrews talking about the believers in Rome. And so we would think that the Apostle Paul most likely wrote the book of Hebrews for the Hebrew believers in Rome. And the reason why I compare Hebrews and 1 Peter is because Hebrews gives us a good understanding of the context of the believer's suffering. I mean, your memory verse this month is Hebrews 10.25, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. You see, there was an exodus of trusting in Christ. There was an exodus of the church. People would say, yes, I want to believe there was a great revival of Jews becoming born again since the day of Pentecost throughout Jerusalem and Israel. And then, of course, the gospel swept throughout the Roman Empire and many Jewish believers were starting the ch these churches. And then as persecution came, people would say, you know, I, I'm not really, I thought I was into this thing of Christianity, but I'm not. Because here's the thing, I talked about this morning how the Jews would stay together. And if you were a Jew, you bought your meat and your supplies and your teachings and your uh, understanding of how your Jewish community survives in these synagogues and everything revolved around themselves. They protected themselves. They had their own communities. Well, you, you all of a sudden come to know the Lord is your savior. And it's like the Jewish community is going to have to say, you're going to have to be exiled from this community. You cannot live here. You're against our religion, our faith. And so they would leave. So a Jew would leave their surroundings of what they know. And so now they have to go, and who's, who's available for them to live with and, and participate with? Non-Jews. They would be called Gentiles. And Gentiles would hate the Jew. And the Gentiles would look down on the Jew and, and discredit any you know, credibility that they may have. And so the Gentiles had their markets of where they buy their food and get their supplies. And they had their uh, process of community as they worked their system in their towns. Well, now here's a Jew saying, I have to participate in the Gentile system. And the Gentiles would say, well, if you're going to be here, why don't, you, why don't you get your food from your own market? Why do you have to get it from our market? And so there was a big problem in buying food for the Jewish believer, and we see that in Rome, Romans and in 1 Corinthians where certain people were upset that the food was being blessed at idols. I mean, the Jews weren't blessing their food at idols, but the Gentiles were, so you knew they couldn't buy their food at the Hebrew markets if they were Jewish. They had to go to the Gentile ones, and they're like, well, I'm buying food that are being blessed by idols. 
And there was a big conflict there. And Paul said, look, to him that is sin, it is sin. And if it's not sin, don't worry about it. And so some people made a big thing about it and some people didn't. But the Gentiles hated the Jews and the Christians and they made it difficult for them to buy food and to go to the well to get water. Well, there's a Jewish well. You get your Jewish water there. Well, I'm not, even though I'm Jewish, I don't get my water there. I have to come to the Gentile well. Oh, well, you, you're last in line or you don't get any today. And then what about work? You know, you had your Jewish uh, environments where you go and make community work, you know, whether you're agriculture or uh, maybe food industry or maybe carpenter or whatever. And you, know, you worked with the Jews, Jews worked with the Jews. But now you have to go do the Gentiles and Gentiles are like, no, we don't have any jobs for Jews. And they say, well, I'm not a Jew, Jew. I'm a Christian Jew. Oh, well, we don't have any jobs for Christian Jews either. No job. Hard on food. Maybe it's better if I went back to the Jewish way. I had a job in food and water there. And so Paul, or the apostle, whoever is writing the Hebrews, is saying, hey, forsake not. That's the historical, cultural context of Hebrews 10.25. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Don't leave the church. Some people say, well, you know, people are lazy, they're sleeping in, you know, they're missing church Sunday morning. You know, that's what that verse is for. No, the word forsake means complete rejection. It says reject not. So don't reject the assembling of ourselves. Rejecting the assembly is rejecting the church. The church is the picture of the community of God. Rejecting the church is rejecting God. And the church is God's representation of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Rejecting the church is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And people are like, well, I'm dying. I got to go to jail. My sister got thrown in the Coliseum. I can't get any job. I don't have any money. I don't have any food. I'm leaving this place. And rejecting. And, and the apostle is saying, don't reject. Don't forsake. Let's not crowbar that verse to say, oh, if you miss church Sunday morning, you're, you're missing first. You're, you're fulfilling Hebrews 10.25. I think, I think we need to be a little bit more careful. What about the lame person that's stuck in the bed? Maybe there's one stuck in the bed at Fair Acres and can never get out. And the relatives have forsaken. And no one remembers. What about that person not showing up for church? A person forsaking the church? What about the, the invalid that wants to believe in the Lord as their Savior, but can never get out of their bed? Is that person forsaken the church? You see, we need to be very careful to understand the correct context. Although, living a life of not 
serving and participating in the church would have characteristics of forsaking the church. But we need to understand that the apostle in Hebrews and also First Peter was encouraging the saints hey, stay with it to the end. Because tough times are coming. And Hebrews 10, 25, in the book of Hebrews, of those that have left and turned away are just showing that their faith is not in Christ. They are rejecting. And those that stay by the book and the stuff are showing their testimony of how they love the Lord Jesus. And those that stay and love the Lord Jesus will, uh, will experience great suffering. Paul wrote in First. Timothy, that the righteous shall be persecuted. Anytime you stand up for righteousness and go against the wrong way, people will put you down. You know, some say, you know, if, if you're going to be a leader, prepare to be put down an awful lot. If you're going to stand up for something and lead the way, you're going to have people shooting at you. In the front and in the back. And if you don't like that kind of experience, you're probably going to be ducking your opportunities to stand up for righteousness. I know that's difficult, but that's what the Apostle Peter was encouraging this church. And so these people are getting thrown into prison, they're getting thrown into jail, they're getting thrown in Coliseum, they're losing work, they're losing money, they're losing food, they're losing water, they're losing their homes, they're being separated from their families, and much discouragement is happening. So this word is getting to Peter, and Peter's like, i got to encourage these believers. So in verse 14, 13, he says, and who is he that will harm you? Who is he that can harm you? You see, Jesus said, do not fear him who can kill you. But fear him who can kill you and your soul. You see, the world can kill you, but they can't kill your soul. The world can hurt you, but they can't hurt your soul. And see, that's a step more. And so the Apostle Peter says, who is he that will harm you? Well, we can identify who can harm you. The world, maybe at this point, it was the Roman government, the guard. But who is him that can harm you? If ye be followers of that which is good. Verse 14. But and if ye suffer. So, yes, you're going to receive suffering. For righteousness sake. Happy are ye. Some people say, okay, this guy's a bonafide nut job fruitcake. He's happy that he's being hurt. But really, the spiritual insight here is that we can rejoice in the Lord. Yes, we know the world will hurt us. But if we're standing for righteousness, God's, God's spirit and God's joy will always be in us. We need that joy. You know, I think about in the book of Nehemiah where they were building the wall and 
different people who lived in Jerusalem hated Nehemiah and hated the Jews for building the wall. They tried to take them to court and they, and they showed papers from King Cyrus that they were allowed to build the wall. And, and so there was much conflict there against the Jews for building the wall. And they built this wall in 52 days. But it was like the longest 52 days they ever had in their life. And what did Nehemiah tell the believers, the saints there in Jerusalem? The joy of the Lord is my strength. And you see, even when we experience difficult times, we must have the joy of the Lord to carry us through. So when you're experiencing something difficult, get a song in your heart that you can rejoice in the Lord about. That's not easy. Verse 14. But happy are ye, and be not afraid. You see, we sometimes fall into despair, discouragement, demoralization. Because of what we are going to experience. Be not afraid of their terror. This is out of Isaiah. Um, where... It tells us that that the people of God, Isaiah was actually afraid to preach the gospel or preach the good news or to tell the people of Israel to repent. And the Lord gave him a message. Don't be afraid when you look at their eyes. Don't be afraid. Yes, they'll hurt you. Yes, they'll condemn you. Yes, they'll attack you. Yes, they'll verbally hit you or hurt you and physically hit you. Don't be afraid. Neither be troubled. And so the word of God tells us that we shouldn't lose our strength that keeps us confident with the Lord. And what is the opposite of trouble? peace. And what is the message that Jesus gave to the disciples in the upper room? Peace be unto you. And peace I leave with you. And God's peace is one of the greatest gifts that he could ever give anyone. Because you can overcome the problems of life when you are confident with the Lord and the peace of God. And so these are important attributes for the believer to fight against the devil and the wicked one. And so now that you are prepared, according to verse 13 and 14, Peter is writing to them. He says, now I need you to do something. Number one, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word sanctify means to set apart. Now you can have, we all have sanctification in our lives once a person places his faith in the Lord Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. God's Holy Spirit comes in us. He regenerates us. And we are born again only by the power of God. And that's the power of salvation. That is a sanctification process. That is a sanctification that one receives when he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is what we call 
a permanent sanctification. Our being is sanctified. And it's also called positional sanctification. Our position of who we are as believers is, what does the word sanctification mean? Set apart. We are now set apart and clean before God. So, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy that I am blameless before God. Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, put the people to death and in jail and murdered believers. And he writes in Timothy as his testimony, I'm blameless. How does he become blameless? Not because of his actions or his deeds, but because of the sanctification that he received by the blood of the Lamb to make him righteous. And see, all believers are blameless before God. Even though we, we have sin-stained, Adamic nature on us. But we are blameless before God. And that's a great gift that the, that the Lord has given to the believer. And so that word sanctify, we are all sanctified. We are sanctified. Past tense, belief in Christ, sanctified. But the Apostle Peter is saying in present tense and future tense, sanctify. Sanctify the Lord. So what would be different than the position of being sanctified? I like to call it a progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification has many different ideas to it. One idea it has is we are walking on this earth and we are growing more like him every day. As a believer, we're more like him every day and we won't be perfect until we see him face to face. And so we are growing as Believers, we're growing in cleansing. We're growing in setting aside wrong things in our lives. That's progressive. We are progressing. That's progressive sanctification. But then there's a specific act of sanctify just the Lord God in your hearts. That's a person who goes to the Lord by faith. And sets the Lord in his life as ruler, as one who gives his heart over to God. Yes, we do that when we get saved. Yes, we do that when we believe the Lord is our Savior. That's positional. That's regeneration. But then our dynamic nature trials us and we fall. And we oftentimes forget how much God loves us. Sometimes we forget that we're supposed to be walking clean. And, um, and so the Apostle Peter says, hey, look, there's trials, there's sufferings. Now, you need to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Take time to be holy. Take time to get close to God. Take time in the prayer closet and seek the face of God in your life. That's what it means to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts.
And you see, the next phrase of verse 15 tells us why to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And it says, and be ready. You can't be ready to give the gospel a reason of the hope to every man if you're not sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. Part of being ready, the beginning part, is sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. It's just like an athlete. An athlete cannot win the race if he's not preparing for the race. It's like any kind of goal. If you are a project manager, if you are some type of engineer designing plans or ideas, if you are a person who owns your own business and you have a goal that you want to reach, or if you are a, a housekeeper and you have a desire to have your house at a certain point, it's a cinch by an inch. It's one step at a time. It's, yes, you have this big goal, that's to be ready, but you have these baby steps that you need to take. And that's the preparation of reaching that goal. You need to have these little goals. And these little goals are day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute and breath by breath. We need to take the mini goals, the baby steps. And that's sanctifying the Lord, getting close to God. And if you do that, then you will be preparing that reason of the hope that is in you. But notice in 1 Peter 1, 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God. And I like that idea of Lord, which means master and God, our God. Sanctify the Lord, the, the master of our lives, in your hearts. Sanctify the master of your hearts. What is your heart? If you understand what your heart is, it will help you to prepare to sanctify. What is your heart? Some people say evangelical Christianity has caused great confusion by giving out the ideas of invite Jesus in your heart. Billy uh, Graham made that phrase a very popular phrase. And, and then another phrase that Billy Graham developed was ask the Lord Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. These are wonderful statements and can be encouraging to people. And many people have come to know their Lord as their Savior in a Billy Graham evangelistic conference, assembly, meeting, whatever you want to call it. And I am a peon to say anything against the Billy Graham Association. But we, we need to understand that the word heart is a true word that the gospel and the Bible uses. It says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, believe in thine heart. It is a true biblical statement. It's just that many people have twisted the idea of heart to mean something else. And so when we say believe in thine heart as Romans 10, 9 and 10, 
tells us. And it says, you know, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Hearts is a real thing. What is the heart? Here's a couple ideas of what the heart should be. Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. All thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, all thy strength. And so the heart is an idea of the ability, a place, so to speak, an abstract place within a man that influences man of his emotions. It influences him with his might. It influences him with his mental abilities. It influences him with his uh, strength, his heart, his mind, his body. And also, Mark 12, 30, 31, love the Lord that God with thy heart, mind, and soul. And so, some say I'm a trichotomist. I divide the body and heart and soul, or heart, spirit, and soul, uh, and body. And some say are dichotomists. It's just the soul and body. doesn't really matter. We do know that we have a soul. And we do know that the scripture says, we believe with thine heart. And Jesus said, with thy heart, body, mind, and soul. And so we have different categories of ideas that are connected. And so a heart is an abstract place where our mind is, our soul is, our influence of our bodies on our strength and it is our innermost seat within us. So some may say the soul and the heart are in the brains. Oftentimes we say invite Jesus in our hearts and we point to our physical organ of the heart. We don't know where this place of the heart is, but it's part of our spirit. It's part of our emotions. And so we need to have our emotions, our will, our intelligence, our body. We need to have a holistic approach of sanctifying the Lord in your hearts. And so when one comes to know the Lord as their Savior, they're not holding back one part of their life. Oh, yeah, I asked Jesus to be my Savior, but not over my money. I'm keeping my money from me. I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior, but I'm still going to go and use my body for, you know, pleasurable sin. Some people divide Jesus as their Savior and still live a life of sin. Now, when you ask Jesus to be in, with all your heart, you give to him your mind, your emotions, your intelligence, your body, your soul. Oh, yeah, we may be weak and we may pull back and we may sin, but we want to give that. We don't divide it and say, yeah, you can have most of this, Jesus. No, we give it all. So we need to sanctify the Lord in all of our lives. Is what that verse is saying in verse 15. Keep the Lord clean in all of your lives. And then you'll be ready 
ready to run the race, ready to take on the mission. No boxer is going to go in a boxing ring who hasn't worked out and learned how to fight. No runner is going to run a race and say, I'm going to win, and who hasn't been training. And we're not going to win any race and defeat the devil if we're not preparing. And so we need to learn to prepare. So prepare the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then you'll be ready. Ready for what? Always to give an answer. So listen, this word ready means immediately. Ready means preparation. Ready means um, desire. Ready means I'm anticipating. Ready means directly. We will be ready. Always to give an answer. What does what is the answer? What is the answer? It's a good question to ask ourselves. What's the answer to life's problems? What's the answer to all these issues that we have? What is the answer? And we as believers should know what the answer is. Here's a few things that the answer is. Number one, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer to life's problems is that Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for our sins, rose again from the grave, and has given his life to take away our sin. He paid a debt that he didn't owe for you and I. What is the answer? The answer is your testimony. When someone looks at your life, do they see that your life has changed? What is the answer? The answer is the word of God. It's the scriptures. And you'll find the answer in the word of God. What is the answer? The answer is in our hearts. We carry the answer within us. Second Corinthians 5 tells us about how the outward vessel cracks, but the glorious light of the gospel shines through. Our lives will experience trouble. But we carry the answer in our hearts. What is the answer? It is our mind, our understanding, our intelligence. What is the answer? It's God's solution to every problem. In verse 3.15, it says, Be ready to give the answer to every man. That's every person in this world. And we looked at Mark 16.15 this morning. And we consider every child and every creature. Who is every man? Every nation. The scripture says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. What is he? What is every man? It's every place in this world. It's every culture in this world. In verse 15, it says, and ask you a reason, a reason of the hope 
These two ideas are separate. But oftentimes we think, ask you a reason of the hope. We may think that's one statement. First of all, ask you a reason. They're looking for a reason. That's the answer put in two words. Because others are watching. Our life is a testimony. Your testimony matters. The reason is the gospel. Apologetics is learning how to defend the gospel. <clears throat> and we have different reasons for different ages of this world. But it's always the same reasoning that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the grave. You know, I want to conclude with this illustration. I but I was witnessing to this gentleman one day. His, he was Coach Larry. And uh, one of my hobbies and enjoying experiences that I do is I referee soccer. And I referee soccer, have my college license, high school license, club license. And I get to meet thousands of young people and coaches all around the Mid-Atlantic. And I develop relationships with them. One of the nice things about taking on a career and a profession alongside of my ministry as an evangelist is I use it as a tool to be able to give the gospel to people. I've had great opportunities to give the gospel through my refereeing uh, career uh, to different minority groups throughout Philadelphia. But this one coach I kept on meeting all the time. He was a former like biker and then he, you know, he stopped hanging out with bikers and you know, got his life cleaned up and started learning how to like coach soccer. He never really learned how to coach correctly, but he, he attempted to fill out the application of being a soccer coach and, and help the boys, you know, with the uh, soccer. So he was the upper Derby high school soccer coach for a few years. And I would go see him time to time throughout the year and referee the boys. And, and Upper Darby's crazy, you know. They're just, it's just insane, okay. A lot of Africans, African refugees will come to that school to play soccer. And it's a whole nother universe and level of soccer that you don't quite ever see in America. And African style is different than American style. So you need a good referee to be able to control these boys because... It can be crazy. And um, so, and this coach, he tried to help him. And so there was two springs that I did a league for him and I refereed him three times a week for like 10 weeks. So I got to see him three times a week. And I would come and say hi and talk to him and just have nice pleasantries. How you doing? He asked me how I'm doing. I tell him all about my ministry. A lot of the boys knew me from the streets because I do a lot of youth outreach work in Upper Darby. And so the kids would see me. So they would see me as the referee, but they also thought I was the pastor. So, you know, there's you know, a little confusion there, but they were, they were cool with it all. And, uh, and so I shared with the coach, you know, about the Lord and how much he loves us and because every person I meet, I, I st the very first thing I do is I, whenever I meet a coach, I put out my hand. I say, hello, hi, my name's Tony Rizzo, and praise the Lord. It's good to meet you. You see, most guys are saying, you know, blankety-blank, couple curse words here and there. I always come in and say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Somebody say, it looks like it's going to be a nice day. Praise the Lord. Boys are going to have a good game. Yeah, praise the Lord. And they look at me like, I'm praising. 
Praise the Lord. <laughs> what kind of creature do we got here today? And so they knew I was very, you know, Lord minded and, and, and God minded. You know, they don't know who I am. And uh, but they knew that I was like different. And uh, so as I got to meet Larry and end of the first season, Larry told me, yeah, I'm really sick. I got a I got a little bit of problem in my stomach. It's something that I'm dealing with. I had cancer. I beat cancer. And now I'm doing OK. All right. OK, Larry, I'll be praying for you. So it was the next year and we were doing the season and Larry was there for the first half. And then, you know, he missed a lot of it. And then, um, you know, like the last week he came back and he went to say goodbye to me. I said, okay, Larry, I'll see you. He said, listen, pray for me. I got a big operation in July. This was in June. I said, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, this is the big one. Taking out some of my stomach, all these things. I'm like, okay, I'll be praying for you. I remember you, Larry. And, uh, you know, being in a public school setting, it's difficult to get into a deeper conversation of the gospel. But I always kept the door open. Hey, I want you, here's my phone number. You call me anytime. Any reason, any time of the day, I'll talk to you. All right. So it was four or five weeks later. I was out ministering in New York City. Had a large team of students with me. And we were in the Bronx doing a children's meeting. And I had about 30 kids there. And I had about 40 students with me. And we were in George Washington Park in the Bronx, which is a huge park. And New York City sometimes lets you, the park system lets you do kids meetings without a permit, or sometimes they ask you to go get a permit, and you gotta go down to the building in the park rec center and buy a $50 permit, tell them who you are, all these things. So we didn't have our permit there that day. I said, let's do the kids meeting. So we rounded up all these kids, and uh, we got into this kids meeting, and we got into the message and the gospel, and having a wonderful time. And I noticed a bunch of uh, rec directors were kind of like coming up and asking us questions. Hey, you got your permit? And I told them, I said, no, we didn't get a permit. We're only here one day. And, you know, we, we just decided to do this kids meeting. We're sharing the gospel. We're working with this church down the road. Well, you need to get a permit. Uh, I know, but we're already started the meeting and we'll be done in about 20 minutes. Can we just finish up? And they said, okay, yeah, you can finish up, but you need to get a permit. Don't do that again unless you get a permit. Another rec director's coming in. They're going to shut us down. They're going to say, yeah, you know what? You can't do the 20 minutes. You got to shut down. But before that last rec director came over, and I knew they were getting reinforcements of administrative help to shut us down, I looked up in the sky, and in the clouds, it was a beautiful sunny day. All of a sudden, just turned completely black. I mean, it was dark black clouds. I was like, we are about to get hit with a literal monsoon torrential rainstorm so i said you know what let's just shut this meeting right down right now so we grab everything up i said find all the team because we were in about a 200 yard area i said and get everybody over to that municipal building underneath the big room they had a huge roof i mean huge uh, overhang huge it was like a, a 60 by 100 and uh so i said get everybody underneath that over under uh, overhang and we're gonna wait out this storm we're like two miles from our vehicles and just walking in the city. And we get everybody together and we start making our way over there. And most of us got over there and the sheets of rain came down and there was lightning everywhere. 
and people were just heading for their cars, and some people would come underneath the overhang. We were just stuck there. And you couldn't, couldn't like get out in the rain and walk to your car. You'd be afraid to death to get struck by lightning. And there was this ice cream guy in there selling ice cream. So people are like mobbing him and just getting all the ice cream. And I get this phone call. I'm like, oh, phone call. And it's difficult reception. I get this, I, I ask, I, hello. And the first thing I hear is, who's this? You know, you know, when people call, you say hello, they say hi, this is so and so. Now this guy said, who's this? I'm like, what do you mean who's this? I said, what do you mean who's this? I said, this is Tony Rizzo. He goes, Tony? I said, yeah. And I could hear in his voice, the voice accent, and I could remember it was Coach Larry. I go, who's this? This Tony Rizzo. He goes, Tony? I go, is this Coach Larry? He goes, yeah. I said, how you doing? He goes, well, I'm, I'm in the hospital. I'm like, okay. And then I just realized he was just reaching out to the list of contacts that he had to say goodbye to everybody. And I said, Larry. I said, how'd the operation? He's like, well, I don't know. I said, you're not going to make it, are you, Larry? He goes, no, I'm not going to make it. I was like, Larry, you, you need to call on the Lord Jesus as your Savior right now. He goes, I want to do that. So I prayed with him. He called on Jesus right then. I said, Larry, that's the most important thing. Yes, I have to ask Jesus to be your Savior. I'm doing that, Tony. Thank you so much. And we had a couple pleasantries, and, and he hanged up. Larry was gone. End of that day, he was gone. So I never heard, because I didn't know his family personally. Never heard much. And it was three months later, and I was at Lower Marion High School getting ready to referee Upper Darby Varsity Boys against Lower Marion. And Lower Marion was going to blow them out, but I just felt different about the, the Upper Darby Boys. It was the first game of the season. And Coach Adam, Upper Darby High School Varsity Boy, comes up. I said, Adam, hey, how you doing? Adam was Larry's son, who was the assistant coach. <clears throat> and Adam was a young man. I said, Larry, I said, Adam, how you doing? He said, good. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry about your dad passing away. And he said to me, and this is in front of uh, the stadium, and there's three athletic directors for Lower Marion's. They all come dressed with ties and jackets at Lower Marion, and, you know, and it's just a real high professional uh, program they run there. I said, Larry, I just want to let you know that I prayed with your dad and he asked Jesus to be his savior. <clears throat> and Larry asked Jesus to be his savior, I told him. And Adam looked at me, Adam's 6'3", and just started crying uncontrollably. 
and wouldn't stop crying. And I grabbed him and I hugged him and I took him over. I told him it's going to be okay. And I prayed with him. And, and Adam was like so happy that his dad asked Jesus to be a savior. And I tell you that story to tell you, always be ready to give an answer to every man. You don't know the influence of your testimony and what it means. And be ready. Organize your ready. Prepare your ready. And be involved. And get the gospel out to every man. I'd like to ask for every head bowed, eyes closed as we close in prayer. Hope I didn't take advantage of your good graciousness of going too long. But you know, the Lord is speaking to many hearts here tonight. And I want to encourage you here tonight to look inside your heart and ask God, Lord, prepare my heart. Oh, there may be somebody who your testimony is ruined with. That doesn't mean there can't be a new person and a new opportunity. And so pray and say, Lord, I want you to be sanctified in my heart. Would you ask him that quietly and privately?